In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. This is Sandy and welcome to Money Tales. You know that feeling you can get that guides you to make a money decision? Regardless of how strong that gut feeling is, you may put it aside in order to analyze the situation and convince yourself that your gut just isn't right. Our guest today discusses why we need to embrace our intuition. Cami here. In today's episode, we talk with Jill Willard. Jill is a world-known and gifted intuitive and a leader in meditation practice. The tools of her trade are having an extraordinary understanding of the different parts of our brains and how they integrate with the systems of the body. Jill brings those to our Money Tales conversation today. Money conversations can often cause emotional and physical reactions. As you listen to the interview, be sure to flag the centering exercise that Jill leads us through. This is a great takeaway practice, and we recommend following it whenever you find yourself in a challenging money conversation or situation. Now, on to the interview. Welcome, Jill Willard, to Money Tales. It is wonderful to have you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We would love to start this conversation with you. If you don't mind telling us a brief, it's always hard to do, but a brief summary of your journey and what got you to this moment, especially maybe sharing one, two, or three of the pivotal moments of your life. Absolutely. So I think what honestly got me to this moment now is becoming a mother and also healing my mother and father wound. I think that sums it up. So I was an aware child with a very open mind. And I think a lot of my journey has been about the witnessing of myself and the world and relationships and also holding on to my true nature, my nature, which we all have. And how relational that is, meaning it's with each other. I think we're finally talking about that in in this moment in time, in a relationship with our surroundings, our parents. Key relationship to money, because money is power in our culture and has been for hundreds of years. And I think our journey to sum it up was really just about trusting myself and working with energy or with environment. And at times that brought money high and, and low. And also at the same time, I think clearing the mother and father wound and really stepping into my nature brought back the worth of who, how I believe we're all made, but how I was made, especially as a female. So becoming a mother helped me really understand and giving birth the power that my body, mind, spirit, and soul is. And it's not my power. I didn't make myself. So that really brought me the journey into the now. And I think coming on here with you today, really stepping into that as a female and, and really hoping for a quality, not better than, but just knowing we're even. That's wonderful. Can you give us a little bit more on what it is you do? I know I've read about yeah. you. 
for knowing. <laughs> That's a joy to talk about because I, what I do, I've been doing for a long, long time and it, it felt like it was in the dark a little bit and it really relates to money and, and exchange and the give and receive, right, of, of so many things. Mm -hmm. So I teach meditation. I am an intuitive known for a long time as a psychic, but I came from a very 2.2 family in Northern California with, I will say honestly, Caucasian skin and a beautiful public school system. So that wasn't on my resume <laughs> leaving college. <laughs> <laughs> but I teach that we're all so intuitive. I think our right brain or our feminine side or more of our socially connected, spiritual present side has really been hidden in all genders. And so I teach to help bring that out. I teach we're all very intuitive and many are very psychic and to trust our gut. And I do it in a lot of brain term and then also teach energy centers. So we could go, I am an intuitive meditation, or we can go present and keep it very much about the brain and the limbic system. But that's what I do. And a mother of three and just really staying present, even in these times, I think is the most doing I've done, right? Staying mm -hmm. calm and centered in 2020. It's been Thank a challenge. You. It's been a challenge. So Jill, tell us about life before motherhood. Start when you were young and you've mentioned a little bit about what it was like growing up for you, but if you could just fill us in some more details and specifically how money played a role in your childhood. Money growing up, I learned early when I was young, I lived in Europe and I understood really early that money is not everything because in Europe, it isn't everything. Joie de vivre, family connection was a very large role, very large role. And I come from Italian side of my family. San, they've been in San Francisco for a few generations, but I have a lot of that European in I, so maybe I just connected to it. The reason I mention it here is I knew connection was the gold. We need money for wants and needs. But at the same time, um, I could tell there was a fight for money when I got back to the States in the mid seventies, I was five. And I just felt like there was just such a lack of that joie de vivre and love and connection, yet we were one of the wealthiest nations. My dear friend in high school, her mom worked for Reagan at the time. I grew up in Fair Oaks outside Sacramento. So I understood politics where my brain was at. I was very conservative when I was you know, 14 through 18, but that's also because I loved Lincoln, who I now think was probably a Democrat or somewhere in the middle. I changed parties in college. But in my childhood, I mention it because the dinner table, we couldn't talk about feelings and we almost couldn't talk about money and politics. And I just saw they were all the same thing. I had a liberal mother, more conservative mid Midwest father, and, and money was not discussed. And I mentioned the European and my Italian descent because my grandfather, who I just still admire and idolize, we lost him when I was 25, right after we lost our grandmother. You know, they were so in love. He was so generous. He came from no money, was brilliant, ended up making a lot of money when my mom first started to. My mom was in the first grade. She got her first TV in San Francisco. I just noticed, though, that they gave us a lot. So I grew up in middle class, but kind of grew up upper middle class that, you know, I would get the nicer gifts or a big check that I negotiated part I got even in high school and then most went into my college fund. So there was a discrepancy in our family is my whole point. We built a beautiful home when I was in the fourth grade. There was a lot of money around I, but I didn't see my dad make it in his worth. And my mom was a stay-at-home mother. So a lot of confusion, which I think has led to a lot of white fragility and a form of white supremacy or better than. I experienced that and I was aware of it. So it's a very confusing journey, as I think Sandy knows in ways, because you've been a beautiful mentor and leader for I 
with women and money and understanding so much more about that we need to understand money. And I, for so long, was shoveling that off, almost like it was more the masculine or a father thing. But I noticed my mother's father was the one who really supplied us with so much, including a first car and a college fund. So my journey was windy, but I learned about age 17, 18, it's not about money, but I had everything I wanted, so I was able to let it go. And I think that's a big phase about our childhood. We need to work through that we get our wants, then we can understand our gut and the giving. And a lot of people have never had or were fighting for money or it's never enough. So we've never even gotten through still being stuck in our childish ways. Hey, Jill, what was happening at 17 or 18 that brought this realization? Question. One, I think the brain does a master flesh. We're proving that in college. I think you go into your upper adolescence if you're a present human. You go up into your power and worth in adolescence. It's high school. It's, you know, junior, senior in college. I also had my first sexual experience then and my first big relationship where it was he and I, and it was wonderful. I mean, it, it ended upon inequality, but it started out wonderful. But I think that, and then going into senior year of high school, and I was in the honors classes and the, you know, the calculus and that kind of stuff. So I was really coming into my own of independence. And then I left for college. And that's really when at age 18, I was budgeting my own money, but there was money, but I was budgeting my money very well. I had, you know, the spreadsheet way back then. And I really found a lot of power in that age of independence, independ. But once again, I had independence from so many around I helping me with that, including my grandparents. So I think it's interesting that you were budgeting in college after having been raised in an environment where there's no conversation about money. So I wonder, how did you know to budget? Well, intuitively, that right brain presence, right? But also I watched my parents argue about money. Not a lot, but when they did, they did. And my mom sub or unconsciously said often, we can't afford this, we can't afford that. Yet then when my grandparents came, we were getting Valentine's Day, we were getting extra $20 to buy the Barbie horse. Or, you know, I went through sixth grade loving a spree, very San Francisco and going to the outlet and making that $100 spread to, you know, like nine things. But I got the labels in sixth and seventh grade. I got the guest jeans and they were $80. And I understood you can buy one thing for $80 that you really want and wear it a lot, or you can, you know, kind of make it spread. But that joie de vivre or that humanness of give and receive that I learned. I learned not to hold too tightly, but you have to have enough to pay your bills and then hopefully for some enjoyment in life and then some giving. So maybe it was osmosis. Honestly, I want to say my DNA for my grandparents, but I was aware of those relationships and then I could witness them and decide for myself. And I think that's what we all have about age 17, 18, if we're paying attention. You know, what did I learn from my parents and then what do I want to let go? And many humans, right, in our 40s and 50s and 60s are still emulating our parents, even if we didn't like it and it was adversarial, or we're hoarding because we didn't have enough and we're like, I'm going to do it, pendulum swing in opposition to my parents and grandparents, or the entitlement of they were, you know, immigrants, but now I have money and I deserve this money when we didn't really earn it in its entirety. So I think the awareness, luck. (laughs) So tell us about finishing up college, becoming financially on your own. What was happening in your life at that time? I'm glad we're here because I finished college a little early and I did not have college debt. Later, I had some graduate school debt. So I I understand a little more about debt now. But coming out of college, it was 1996. The tables had turned. Clinton was in the administration. 
we were liberal, but we were coming off of the 80s and 90s, which I feel we're dealing with right now in a lot of ways, a lot of gluttony, a lot of, you know, excess the 80s and 90s brought. And I did follow the conflicts and understood what was going on in the media with, quote, war, even though we we're pretending things weren't happened. I was aware that was my intuition, too. I was kind of aware there was some revisionist history going on week by week. But at the same time, I was trying to find my feminine worth. I moved to Manhattan Beach right away on my own. I think some people know the stories. I was psychic enough that I knew when a boyfriend was cheating or something was going on. So I went independently. I wasn't dating anyone at that time. I met an AVP player right away who is a brilliant gentleman who graduated Stanford in three years. He already had his first home because his parents gifted him his income or what they would have paid for college. So I saw already some successes of people in their early mid-20s. I really wanted that in a way, but at the same time, I was struggling with being such a female and feminine and being a co-pilot, being number two. That really played a role in how much money I made. I chose not to go to a big advertising firm. I was a communication major and wanted to go into publishing and print, but I knew the slogans and whatnot were kind of hoodwinking, you know, certain things. Um, I almost went to a firm that worked with Taco Bell and other places, but I was done eating Taco Bell at that time. So I was like, I, I kind of understand. I can't, you know, I could make more money and have a great retirement plan, but in healthcare. So to a very small publisher right in the town of Manhattan Beach, two miles away, I could walk half the time. And I say that though, because I made very little they wanted me to go into sales, which I was terrible at. And that, that wasn't part of the job description, I thought. And I didn't know my worth. And I just didn't make a lot. And the funniest part was I would negotiate when we would travel. When I would travel with my darling boyfriend, you know, he would sometimes pay for the flights. And I said, yeah, but I'm missing work. And I really learned to start negotiating exchange of like, if you want me to be there, be a lucky rabbit, but you might have to pay for a meal. And it was a funny thing at that time. And I didn't go in debt, but money was getting tight. So I started to nanny one day a week, almost in service. But because I believed in worth already, I ended up working for someone across the city in Beverly Hills. And I said, just $10 an hour is fine. And they ended up paying me $50 an hour. So a stroke of luck then that let me buy a Land Rover when I was 24 and have a lot of money in the bank. And that's when I ended up choosing to go to graduate school. But it's funny that I was doing so well and then I almost sabotaged it going back to work. So that was that kind of phase of high lows of money, very tight, not much in savings, but yet could pay all the bills even in Southern California. What did it feel like when someone's buying dinner for you, when you're more like, I'm independent? Did that, yeah. did that just feel fine? It didn't always, because honestly, too, I'm like, I'd rather have that $80 and put it into savings. Let's go, you know, have a peanut butter sandwich. So it was a funny, it felt like an imposter syndrome at times, but yet 70 people were doing it. Sometimes the dinner would be sponsored by Wilson Volleyball or all these different hotels, but it was so wasteful, it felt. I even knew then, this is the late 90s. Yes, what am I doing in here? I felt a little bit like an imposter at times. Mm. It's a really great point you just made, Kemi. And Jill, you mentioned your worth, and I think it'd be interesting to ask you to define what that means to you. How do you define your worth? I truly define my worth as being a female, I think the female brain is different than the male brain. I think we're going to prove that if we haven't already. There's a great book, right? And in Marin already about the female brain. It's one of the most brilliant ones I've seen to date. But worth, worth is this exact exchange. I think worth is being very present and here. And the, I know I'm very female. I don't mean to make it about gender, but I understand worth for I as bond showing up for my children, especially in their first 14 years. You know, they're, then they can start moving well they start moving on about right age seven or eight but my worth is being present being an embodied female 
And that does not give almost any exchange of money or gold in our culture. It's almost expected, you know, have the child be polite. You need to be healthy. You need to be this, that, and the other, the home needs. There's still some of that going on in our home. And I will say that is definitely on I, but at the same time, I think that's on should be on parents more evenly, especially if two parents work. You know, I don't enjoy cleaning the toilets. I don't enjoy some of these things, but I naturally felt that was a woman's worth because that's what I also saw for so many generations. Now I believe just in the past couple of years, a woman's worth really is showing up in equality, evenness, and also speaking up. Worth to I has not been about money. I struggle sometimes with how to make enough money and I've made a lot of money in my career, but then I've pulled back when we've moved or certain things and the worth I feel is in the home raising the ch children to be so in their bodies and embodied that they can go out in the world and it's kind of like raising an adult. So my worth really was in that female role, which I'll admit was probably stuck in ways in the 40s and 50s, similar to our school systems and our healthcare system. I was very aware that if I did it another way, I'd be going rogue and I just felt our, my children would suffer in ways. And that's just my perspective. But I believe worth now is really understanding a female is so equal and to help a female where she needs when she asks <laughs> and not just make it so masculine based or left brain based, meaning about the physical and mental, which money is physical. It's, you know, really more of a left brain process, especially in our culture. And then we've lost connection or socialization and seeing one another. How do we value things that don't come with a price tag then? Right? That's where, that's the work I do. You know, it's so interesting. This cute outfit I'm wearing or what I'm wearing is from a girlfriend who I just saw who was in our wedding, who handed off a bunch of clothes from her beautiful, stunning three-story home in Hermosa Beach. But worth, I believe, is seeing one another and saying, I'm done with this. Can I pass it on? Wait, I do have $6 million in the bank or $60 million. Do I need to die with that? I could actually affect my children and grandchildren negatively by passing this on. I think worth is a lot more about what's in the presence right now. And that's why Mother Earth and what's going on and COVID and what's going on in politics. We've made worth polarizing and competitive. We've made it someone wins and someone loses. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's human worth at all. I think we're in a very unconscious low vibrational state stripping from mother earth or stripping where it's easy, even in economics, you know, where plastic goes up or oil goes this way. It's just uncanny how much we take from the feminine, including mama earth and the female. I think that if there's a lack of worth or exchange going on. So I think worth is so much more than the things, but we're speaking from a place that we all are in a safe home, a beautiful environment. We have food, so we're also speaking from a platform where our basic needs are met. A lot of people in my industry saying wellness and spirituality, oh, you just, you know, thoughts become things. Well, we, we have boots. We have security and safety. We're not in that primal part of the brain of always being in fear. The irony is some are in fear because they're losing money, but it's illusionary as we've talked about where, you know, the way economics and the markets go. If you write it out, you'll be fine, but it's an illusionary um, unsafetyness and it's just a fascinating process. Let's go back to the timeline of your life. So you're going off to graduate school yep. and you're borrowing money. This is a brilliant part to go. And this is part of, you know, the two to three pivotal moments in my life. This might be, yeah, this was number one for me. You know, I accepted graduate school after living in Manhattan Beach and doing very well for about three and a half, four years. So I was 26 at the time, but my parents separated 
to divorce. My mom chose it. They were together 30 years, married at that time, I think for 27 or something like that. And it was devastating because it was right where I was going to graduate school and leaving all my safety in life. And yes, I could pack everything up in that gorgeous Land Rover. I became very almost, people joked I was half Buddhist, half Catholic, half all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that's not the proper Mm -hmm. math, but think of more Einstein (laughs) relativity math, one plus Mm -hmm. one equals three. But the point is here, I, I kind of everything crumbled for I, I had no safety net. My mom, because of my inheriting a lot of money from her parents, the ones that did very well, and she was an only child. I think that's when she pulled the bandaid off with my dad. And also my grandparents were Catholic and didn't believe in divorce. So there's a couple things going on. It brought me to my knees going to graduate school. And graduate school was much more expensive than I had budgeted. And my mom had given me a little bit of money from my grandfather to to experience to do graduate school but this graduate school is actually closed now it's called Brooks up in Montecito and it was so I was going to go out and and, uh, photograph and kind of go on the other side of the publishing and do the imagery but I also really believed at that time and Angelina Jolie came out shortly after that time about the UN and more of the going into to show what is in the world and that was documentary photography so it was not going to be a a high-scale job I knew that so I went in and became in debt within six months from never using a credit card in my life. And that was, and then, so I accepted weddings and assisting shoots that my heart and soul wasn't in it, but I had debt to repay. And how did it feel to have that debt for the first time in your life? Awful. Awful. I mean, it went into our early marriage. It felt awful. I was actually judged in our marriage in, in that, and I'm the most accountable person with money. It felt awful. And for everyone listening, no judgment. It's awful. And awful, I believe, too, if you trust a system, even it was Sally Mae at the time, it was the graduate program. I mean, we were spending close to $20,000 every two weeks on equipment and stuff and rentals. It was very manipulated. But I think humans feel like that today. You're told one thing and the cheese moves, like almost like a lot of college graduates who work their tush shop. I was an honor student at UC Santa Barbara, and now I'm in debt. And, you know, it was really awful, but I'm grateful to experience it. So when did you move to your intuitive work as a career, as a vocation? You are so sweet. Pivotal moment number two, right? My husband was studying broadcaster. He's a broadcaster here in San Francisco for those who listen. That said, I'll be completely transparent because we're at transparent times. He had left a job and called me on the way home and said he had left it. And we had a one and a half year old and another one baby on the way. It's very hard try very hard. Now I'll take my responsibility if I wasn't always showing up in my work. I was more appeasing. I kind of let, I went with the flow too much. So I'll take full responsibility for that. At the same time though, when we speak up as females, we get accused of all these things I believe we're not doing. So, you know, it was hard. And that was 2008. The right when also what happened in the economy happened. So point is that choice where we were in partnership, I said I would come out and work. And so I worked at a toy store one Christmas, just make sure we had Christmas. And then friends and different soul family members said, you have to come out as an intuitive and a psychic. And I said, no, thank you. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. there, all these humans came into my life that were incredible. And then from there, I practiced a hundred times on friends and came out of intuitive and it went off like a shot. And I started making a lot of income but most of it went back to family and basic needs and our bills. But that's how that pivot happened. So not driven for money or was no, it? No, driven yeah. out of necessity. And I think, I think some males are like this. I think it is non-gender. But in my experience in my whole lifetime, which is probably what I magnetized to, it was the female coming in and doing what I had to. I was breastfeeding at the time, but we needed to feed the kids. And 
And a funny thing is I want to say here, because this has come up a lot in the past two weeks in a lot of meetings. You know, I lived in Manhattan Beach and my husband lived in Marina Del Rey. He owned a home or owned a condo. And people used to say, you know, Manhattan Beach has now become more of a catchphrase in, in the U.S. More people know it's a great beach town. It is expensive. But my rent was $700 at the time. His condo in Playa Del Rey, which some of you guys know in Marina Del Rey in a different part of California, was known as, a, you know, the zip code was known as less um, real estate. But he had, you know, mortgage and then the arm at that time. He did whatever that was in 2004 or five. And he was paying 19 or 17, 18, $1,900 for his little one bedroom condo. And I was in a two bedroom one bath paying a third of it. So I learned around then too, we got to take these labels off because I'm actually being very economic. I've been that home nine years. I, we raised two children in that little great bungalow paying not very much. So I learned in that moment, huh, even us females are getting accused of things and males too, but that just aren't true. You know, I made a lot work on very little and to go back to what you had said, I was really doing it to feed our kids and to start a college fund and really was focused on that. And uh, friends know that they were feeding me and giving me hand-me-downs to get me through because then it was started going public. And then I was out in the media still with that discrepancy. It was hard. I love it. All, it was your calling, but it, it's, thank you for saying that, mm-hmm. that you just summed it up and I, I could have done it in my teens and twenties, but this is just the time I was fully forced to do it. I don't think everything's always for a reason, but sometimes when it's time, it's time and we get moved into it. Right. And so tell us about how money is playing a role in your marriage at that time. It was hard. Money was playing a big role because then all of a sudden it was about power. And Sandy, I could cry here because that was now, what, 14 years ago, 15, 14, 13 and a half, 13 years ago. And when I started making a lot of money, I was so proud. It was all going back to our joint account. But I noticed some sub unconscious things that we're playing through now where I was making a good amount and it wasn't going to me. I wasn't, you know, going to Vegas with 20 girlfriends <laughs> saying you have the kids. I, I didn't have a babysitter even at that time. And I think sub unconsciously it was hard. I don't want to speak for Mark, but I noticed some subtleties that were subconscious and unconscious. It changed our dynamic. And I was like, what is, what's happening? I thought we were all team players here. You know, we were a family of four. Now we're a family of five. And it happened again. I came back to have our third child. And then my husband lost his job at ESPN a year early. And I knew intuitively he was going to do it. And he didn't, it was going to happen. And he didn't really listen to I. Sorry, let me speed up. I speed up stories when I get nervous. And when I'm trying to sum it up, it was a very interesting stage back then. And then a stage that resurfaced about seven years ago again. It was exciting. And I was like, oh, this is great, but I didn't change my personality. I was still very much a mom and wife and it changed our dynamic in not some great ways. And were you guys talking, talking with each other about money as the dynamics were shifting or what was happening? Yes and no, we were. And I think we came from different ways growing up a little bit. So we had a different feeling about where money should go. We were, but I noticed they didn't have a lot of power and say, I would have to force it a bit. And then my husband's, my beautiful family, but my husband's parents and whatnot came from not having a lot of money, San Francisco as well, and two teachers and grew the money, which I love. That just, I don't think was Mark and my path. We're just very highly creative and we were lucky enough to go to college and get great jobs right out of college. So I felt we could have a little more joie de vivre, not even by money, just about choices. So all of a sudden we were having differences because I was trying to have a little say on where some of the money should go. And also as a mother. 
you know, like the kids do need one new pair of shoes a year until they wear out, or I am going to buy organic carrots. <laughs> you know, there was just some funniness over cents and dollars. I'm like, what? It was hard, but he'll have his perspective too, which I'm sure a lot, you know, on the podcast would agree with he. So yeah, my Italian-ness probably. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Jill, as we get to present time, how would you describe your relationship with money today? I think my relationship with money today is strong and positive at the same time. I think through COVID, it's been really interesting being stripped. We moved here for my husband's job and I left my career behind down south. And also choosing it, I said, for six months, let me acclimate the three children. And I said it to a lot of to people in the media and, and the teachings that I had done and a lot of clients and cohorts and beautiful humans. And everyone gave me six months, but then in January, we were off. And I was traveling, you know, nine times in two months to kind of catch up. And also we kind of knew what was coming and then COVID hit in March. So my relationship with money is good and strong. I just also know more than ever, it's very imbalanced in the macro. And I think I needed to let go of me trying to think I could help by making more money. It's not going to be enough by one person or one female, if that makes sense. So my relationship is good. It's also just so disheartening right now to really see as we've seen I'll give an example. I went to get the, I think it's called the PPP right away because I have two companies. I got zero and I'm not taking unemployment because I am doing some work with readings and whatnot. And then I saw these bigger companies getting a lot of income and we did need it to put food on the table and also for I to keep what we're doing in the companies for children and, and women and a lot of humans and men and all genders. I knew what we were doing was really going to help in these times, but yet we weren't getting the income to offer the teachings and the bracelets and, and get some filming out. So my relationship with money and myself is a lot stronger. I know I can make money and I can go out and do it. And I think all humans can and kind of have that knowing. I think a lot of manifestation is not just asking or putting out in the world, but also knowing it's going to occur. But in the macro sense of money, my relationship, I could just cry in the injustices that are going on with how imbalances they are as a whole. I'm very aware as human once we turn past 25 money is not just about us it's about our community and our culture and i'm just devastated by where money's being held and not given by that one percent or whatnot when there's so many people not just hungry now but struggling mentally in their huge homes or small homes in the schools you know teachers all these service leaders and service workers that are getting nothing and working so hard and then a lot of people taking unemployment and they're working or they you know have they have a lot. So sorry, that was kind of a two-part question, but the intuitive feminine part of me knows it's, you know, there's stages. It's not just about I. Jill, how would you define a healthy relationship with money? This will be short because I used to teach this a lot and I believe in this. I believe to define with money, whatever we've agreed to, home, car, life, we pay our bills because that's our agreement with our exchange with the world and with stuff and with things. So my definition is always pay for what you've agreed to. That's your agreement or obligation. And then we have it. I have an 80, 20 rule, anything you make over your basic needs. And I mean this for all humans, you put 80% away in retirement stocks, bonds for children. And then you literally just blow or give away 20%. I don't love the term charity because I think sometimes give it to a struggling neighbor or a friend up the street. I have such a funny thing about this whole money and exchange, but I know I'm the unique one, so we don't have to go down that road. 
but that's how I define it. We call it the 80-20 rule. Everything that you've agreed to pay for, pay for put 80% away. But if you make a million dollars, that means you're going to give away 200000 and go give it away and take someone to dinner. I mean, you could be a part of some of it, but maybe not be a part of all of it. Just give to give. So that we call it the 80-20. That is beautiful. Thank you, Kim. So easy to remember. Easy to remember. It's just so easy to remember and hard to do for many. They start going, wait, I just cut a coupon for a dollar. I don't want to give 100000 away. <laughs> anyway, I've talked with a lot of CEOs and leaders and thought leaders about this. It shocks 98% of them. It saddens me, actually, but that's for another day, too. This is positive about money. Yeah. <laughs> Jill, as you look to your intuitive work and intuition, you know a lot about the functioning of the brain and the body, the heart and the mind. Does money play a role? Does money sit somewhere in our body? Yes, because it's matter. It's dense matter. So I don't think the money sits in our body. I think what money is exchange in our culture. So what we receive sits in our body. So food, good water, air, but our table, a piece of clothing we like, I think that sits on in our body. The food goes in, the supplements if we need them. I'm actually about less is more. I think that it plays a big role. I think the relationship to money is the biggest role because a lot of people stress about a dollar, but they make billions, but then they get dementia or they get a heart disease. You know, So I think our thoughts about money really sit in the body because it turns into insulin, adrenaline, cortisol. This is very real. This is not esoteric. You know, our adrenals start to go, our fight or flight, our, our patterning that we learned from our family that we don't even know we still have, you know, were our parents in the Holocaust, were our parents generous with tipping, plays a big role in our DNA and our genetics. So I think sadly, money is worth in our culture and it, and it really is hard for me as a 46 year old woman to see that because I see it in our kids as we do. And you could be in California or anywhere around the world. The world emulates the U.S. and we are all about money and power, most money going into guns and into war and into stripping oil out and these and big pharma, which affects our bodies and our streams of water. And it's hard. Yeah. So I do think money lives in our body in the sense of our thoughts and perceptions about money and our hoarding about money. I know I've said that word, but I really want people to start in many cultures Many cultures, a lot too large of a home or too much money is a, is a mental disease. It's a mental unease. What an irony. Mm. So many of my clients that have five, six homes are the most stressed humans I've ever seen because mm. they're managing so much energy and space and time on earth. So there's that money living in them while their energetic field, you know, that literally just can reach out to here, you know, three feet around us at the most is spread thin like pizza dough because they have an airplane there and a this there and a relationship there. And, and it's just really sad to see, you know, so I believe in a second family home, if you can, that you offer out to friends and family at times, I believe in the balance of things, not to feel sad by having money. It's a wonderful gift, but also know it's a gift and start to exchange and know it's a through thing, meaning we didn't make all of our money. It came from us. It comes to us by our skin tone, by our family, by the college we went to. So it really lives and breathes. Sadly, it's the main focus of everything. And it's what drives us, which is why we have the power we have or who's in power as well. And, and many humans, not just one. Can we ask you to take us through a centering exercise to kind of yes. allow us to... It's a great time for this because I know some of that was heady for your listeners because I'm breaking open, I'm cracking open a lot of myths and things. <laughs> so it's a wonderful time for a centering exercise. So. 
what I often do, as people know, is I either teach about the brain and the midbrain, the limbic system, our human part of the brain, or I teach about energy centers, just the colors of the rainbow. Sometimes that's actually easier because we don't think it's personal. Either way, let's just focus on the word centering and let's do three deep, wonderful breaths that help a lot. So we can just get centered and feel our feet if we're up in our head from the conversation or feel our heart or just notice if we're tense anywhere. And then let's focus on taking a deep inhale and recognizing the air oxygen going through both nostrils evenly. Very important. So breathing in and just noticing no judgment. Deep as you can into the belly or diaphragm or a little deeper in the lung, in your lungs. And when you're ready, exhale through the nose or mouth on this first one. And then inhaling again, possibly dropping our shoulders down away from our neck and jaw and inhaling, noticing again the breath going through both nostrils. Breathe in a little deeper. And this time, maybe feel or notice the oxygen. Hold it like a pause or bright balloon, light and full. Or just let the air dance in your lungs for a moment. This is very helpful. And remember, it's bringing money in and it's opening your limbic and you're helping your nervous system. And when we're ready, exhale out. Please don't hold your breath too long. If that's hard, this should be of ease. And then let's inhale one more time, however we wish. Dropping our shoulders down and maybe next, this time understanding or letting your hips drop into your seat or if you're lying down or relaxing, reclining. Notice your hips and let them relax. I said next time, so maybe some people and humans will do next time, which is fine. And when we're ready... Exhaling out through the nose if you can, but it can be the mouth, and letting that exhale be as long as possible. And then here we are, centered. Thank you. I love it every time. <laughs> it's needed. It's needed so Same much, thing. even when I don't think I need it. Well said. And it's free, and it's with you always, especially when you're making money decisions. Do this first with yourself or your partner. Because you'll be in awareness and a centering. And honestly, you'll get more intuitive about the markets. You'll make better <laughs> business and, and money decisions. It's all good. That's great. How do you define financial success? I define financial success as freedom. Um, that our basic needs are, are set and we have a few of our wants. And then the third part is that we give. That we're in the adult part of the brain and we give. That's success. If we can't give, we're clutching and we're not enjoying our money. So that's what I'll say there. Beautiful. We're not enjoying our riches and sharing them. That 80-20 once again. Jill, what's something in life that you haven't done yet that you really want to do? So I'm going to go high on this one. I'd like to be nominated or get a Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> <laughs> Might take a couple decades. That's the big one. Um, in a micro way, this next piece of writing, The Well, is not out yet. And I was just with Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach. I ran into them. and. She has untamed, so I mention it, not to name drop, but to say so many humans want me to write like she in this next writing, and I'm holding the book back because there's some personal stories that might hurt some feelings. 
And um, I want to make sure I write them from a very healed whole place of respect and love. So that's one thing I haven't done is get the well out. It's about the nervous system. It should be a very mainstream, lovely piece of writing. And then lastly, you know, I'd, I'd love to have one more child in the sense of adopting or have a niece come live with us. I feel we have so much space and I could cry that I haven't extended it out a little bit, not in a martyring way, not where all of a sudden, you know, we have 20 people and the neighbors, it's a little <laughs> loud for the neighbors maybe, but um, that's one thing I haven't done. Financially, I believe the money always comes when we show up in our worth to go full circle. So I don't look at numbers that is many people could tell it's probably just my type of brain. I mean, I'm a math brain, but I don't believe numbers. I think that's more labeling. What does that really mean for us? So I'd like to extend some more offering. I've not, I don't think I've done what I wish yet. We're excited about the forthcoming book and um, we'll be excited when you get that award. Thank you. You'll be there. (laughs) With arms open for sure. As we think about our, our lives in general, how do you want to be remembered? You know, is, oh it, is it the Nobel Peace Prize or is it back to the kids? No. And the, yeah. Well, being kind is what, how I want to be remembered. That I was kind and that I saw that I was in the moment and that when I saw something, I went into kind action about it. That was kind, was loving. Hmm. And that's going to be an interesting one because I'm already accused of a lot I do not do. You know, even on this podcast, some might not like it in ways, or I hope everyone loves it, of course, but it's going to stir up some things. And I'm, I'm not trying to be a disruptor. I think I only am because there's things that need some cracking open, right? Some untaming or um, unhinging or unleashing. So I hope to be remembered that I was kind and that I was, yes, of course, a strong present parent, that the kids know that when we rupture, we repair, you know, we're not perfect, but that when I ruptured anything, I made sure I took my part and repaired and, and that it stayed kind because I feel that's what everyone remembers anyway, right? On our deathbed, we don't talk about money. I've been to many deathbeds, mm-hmm. many wealthy, wealthy humans, and that money, they usually regret that they held on to so much, right? Out yes. of fear or pain. So let's be kind. And I, then we can all be remembered that way and we'll all dance and wherever we go or, or not go. No regrets. No regrets. Well said. That is so beautiful and so powerful. That is it. And that is hard because people think I will get to that, but that we need to be doing it right now and yesterday and tomorrow. So it's right now, no regrets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Chill, as we wind down our conversation, what's one piece of money wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners that hasn't come up yet in our conversation? Oh, I love that. I think back to worth and openness. You know, we're very left brain and narrow focused. Open it up. Open it up for some good luck or a good financial choice or I don't want to say gamble a little, but play a little, you know, with a little bit of money. See what happens. Money that you can lose. I don't think spend more necessarily, especially if you don't have it, but maybe back to that 80-20 rule. Give a little more and you'll feel the gold of that as well. And open it up and see the joie de vivre that comes that's not money or what we call second chakra break, but it's up here in the heart. It's alchemy. Win-win. You enjoy your money. So many don't enjoy their money. (laughs) Full circle back to that gentleman, you know, that I dated so long ago. And although I went to Stanford and had a master's in econ, you know, every year he had a goal of the money he wanted to make. So I remember on like December 26 being like, did you hit your 200,000 mark? You know, this was in the 90s. He's like, I did. Since you're going to enjoy it for four days and then January 1, you're going to go. Like, good point. (laughs) We love to end on one question. 
Joe, what's going to be your next money conversation? And who's uh, it going to be with? If you can name the person. My husband's just walked up the stairs. He's not going to want to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> Balance and equality of money and what a, a female spends differently than the male. And so we need a good amount to make sure we're taking care of our children and ourselves. The worth of female is worth a lot of gold and we need more money in our hands. That's the next money conversation. <laughs> Jill Willard, thank you so much for being our guest today. You taught us a lot about giving and we really appreciate all that you gave to us in this conversation. Thank you. I really appreciate you, your questions and presence. Brilliant. It was a joy to do. Such an honor. Adore you both. Keep going and what you're doing. You're such leaders. Sandy here with today's Financial Insight. Many of our Money Tales guests including Jill Willard in today's conversation, talk about the important role that giving plays in their lives. Giving away money, whether it's to charity or to family and friends, is an activity that allows people to express their values, connect to their community, and often helps make the world a better place for all of us. In the Financial Insight from Money Tales episode number one with Rabbi Ryan Bauer, we discuss some aspects of charitable giving. Today, we're going to cover the technicalities involved with making gifts to family and friends. You may be wondering, are there really technicalities involved with making gifts? Well, if you're making large gifts, there are some gift tax guardrails to be aware of. And while many of these guardrails are pinned to dollar limitations and hurdles, I encourage you to focus on the big picture concepts of this discussion. At the 30,000 foot level, you should know that at the beginning of 2021, the U.S. government limits tax-free transfers to $11.7 million per gift giver. This is called the Lifetime Gift and Estate Tax Exemption. That's a mouthful, so we'll just call it the Lifetime Exemption for short. There are four key things to know about the Lifetime Exemption. First, it covers the cumulative gifts you make during your lifetime and upon your death. Second, if a person gives away more than their lifetime exemption, they'll pay a 40% federal tax on excess transfers. If the excess transfer occurs during the person's life, the tax is called a gift tax. And if the excess transfer instead occurs at death, the tax is called an estate tax. Importantly, it's the person or the estate making the gift that pays the tax, not the recipient. The third thing to know about the exemption is that it's a lifetime amount per person. This means married couples can combine their lifetime exemptions and give $23.4 million away tax-free between the two of them. It's a lot of money. Number four, the lifetime exemption amount inflates annually and Congress can make changes to this part of the tax law at any time, and they do. For example, over the last 21 years, Congress has changed the lifetime exemption amount seven times with it being as low as $675,000 in the year 2000 and as high as $11.7 million today. During that same time period, the gift and estate tax rate has been in the 35% to 55% range, with the exception of 2010, when the estate tax was 0% for people who died that year. A shift in politics often triggers these tax changes. So if you have the capacity to make generous gifts to others, be sure to pay attention to these tax rules whenever a different political party takes over the presidency and or Congress. Now that we have the lifetime exemption rules in mind, I want to point out that there are a few ways to avoid using your lifetime exemption so that it'll be available for use later on in case that's helpful. First off, married spouses can pass an unlimited amount of money back and forth between each other during life or at death. This keeps things really easy. 
When it comes to making gifts to someone other than a spouse, be aware of the annual gift exclusion. The annual exclusion amount is $15,000 per person in 2021, and the amount is subject to inflation. Think of the annual exclusion as a gift tax freebie, because if your gift is below the annual exclusion amount, it does not eat into your lifetime exemption. And be careful not to mix up the concept of the annual exclusion and the lifetime exemption. They're different. I mentioned earlier that the lifetime exemption is cumulative over gifts you make during your lifetime and at your death. The annual exclusion, on the other hand, is available for you to use each year, and if you don't use it, you lose it. The annual exclusion is pretty cool because if you have capacity and are giving money to many different individuals, it allows you to be extremely generous. Let's say you want to make gifts to your three siblings and each of their spouses. The annual exclusion rules for 2021 would allow you to give $30,000 to each couple or $90,000 in aggregate. If you're married, you could also elect to use your spouse's annual exclusion and double the gifts to $60,000 per couple. If you make a gift that exceeds the annual exclusion, then you'll need to file a gift tax return because the excess amount will dig into your lifetime exemption and the gift tax return filing is the IRS's way of tracking your use of the lifetime exemption. The good news is that no gift tax will be due on gifts in excess of the annual exclusion amount if or until you've used up all your lifetime exemption. The third way to avoid using your lifetime exemption is to pay qualified medical and or tuition expenses for others. As long as you pay these expenses directly to the provider, you can make an unlimited amount of these gifts each year. The tax code is pretty flexible in these areas, but it's also very specific about what counts as qualified medical and tuition expenses, so be sure to consult an advisor to make sure that you're following the rules correctly. I've focused my comments here on the federal tax rules. Be aware that at least one state, Connecticut, currently charges a gift tax in some situations, and many states charge an estate tax. If you're going to make large gifts during your lifetime or at death, be sure to consult your financial advisor, estate planning attorney, and or tax preparer to make sure that you're aware of all the tax hurdles you'll need to navigate. Generosity can have both a meaningful impact on the lives of others and on you as you use your resources to help the people you care about most. If you have plans to make large gifts, be aware of the rules in place at the time you're making gifts so that you can avoid tripping over unintended tax consequences and can instead focus on the intention of your giving. That's it for today. For more financial insights, please visit our blog Fathom at experient.com fathom and search the topics you're looking for more information about. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.